0: All right, coaches, welcome back. Uh, Another episode of the Minnesota Basketball Coaching Podcast. Um, Guest today, rival coach, conference school, first conference coach that I've brought in from the Mississippi 8, Mike McDonald, Cambridge I-Sandy head coach. Mike, thanks for joining us today.
1: Well, I guess I'm honored. I didn't realize I was the first conference uh, coach invited to this uh, podcast, Brett. So I guess for that reason, I'm very honored, you know, and and. And like you said uh, yesterday, as we're getting ready here, I think it was a tweet that I read that, uh, you know, some people might be upset that us two are talking it it out a little bit. So, yeah, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: um, Way we always start, uh, coaching Wikipedia page. So tell us where you're from, where you played, and what led you to the Blue Jackets bench.
1: Well, it's a, kind of a long story because I guess I've been doing this for a lot of years. I graduated from uh, Chisholm High School on the Iron Range in, in uh, 1975. My dad, Bob McDonald, of course, was my high school coach. Uh, two state championships, 1973, 1975, that I was uh, honored to be on. Also a third place team in 74. Went to college, uh, first to college at St. At Olaf. Uh, down, spent a year and a half at St. Olaf and then transferred to the University of Minnesota Duluth. Uh graduated from there in 1981, and, and uh, then uh, had six months as a long-term sub-up in Hibbing, close to home. Went to a little town called Ascove, Minnesota, uh, which doesn't have a school anymore up by Sandstone. Uh, spent a whole year, was an assistant on that staff, uh, my first year out of uh, first full-time job. And then uh, lost my job because Ascove, as you know, was combining or closing school, going to uh, with East Central and Sandstone. So then, uh, looking around for a job in the early 80s, and really couldn't find anything, and uh, I had have, have brothers and sisters that played out at South Dakota State, and uh, I actually worked a camp out of South, South Dakota State and got to know Gene Zulk, who was the coach at South Dakota State, and I said, well, if you hear of anything out in South Dakota, let me know, and I ended up uh, getting contacted by Gene, applied for a job out in Preshaw, South Dakota at Lyman High School, and it was there from 1982 to 1987. Uh, very, I mean, in the Great Plains, uh, was a great experience for me. Small school, about 120 total high school students. Spent five years. Had some really good players, some really good teams. Uh, won a state championship in 1985, and out in South Dakota. And uh, great, again, great years. And then uh, in 1987, it's kind of, uh, you know, a funny story here, but uh, my oldest son, Rhett, was born. And of course, you know Rhett, the coach at Duluth East. And he was born uh, as we were living out there. And uh, my parents had never seen our, our, their first grandson at the time. So we journeyed to St. Paul during the state basketball tournament. Rhett was born in February. This was March, so he was a little over a month old. Went to the state basketball tournament in St. Paul uh, to visit with my parents and watch the Minnesota state tournament. And uh, needless to say, uh, I was with my dad watching one of the games at the St. Paul Civic Center at the time and uh, needed to take a bathroom break. And uh, in the bathroom ran into Al Bauman, the famous coach from Little Falls, where right, I actually, uh, as a high school player, played again, so we started talking. And he asked me, have you ever thought about coming back to uh, Minnesota? And I said, well, if there was the right job. And it was Al Bauman who basically said, hey, there is a job open in Cambridge. And from that, I applied. And uh, that was uh, 33 seasons ago, now going on my 34th season here at uh cambridge it was cambridge high school back in the 80s when i joined it now it's cambridge high school so in a nutshell that's that's how i ended up in cambridge and have have put in 33 seasons and looking forward to number
0: 34 coaching fate that you had to go to the bathroom it sounds like at that specific time
1: yeah it was it was fate it actually was it actually was because you think about if i wouldn't have gone there i had no plans of of looking around at the time i had no plans of looking around for a new job it was just fate it just uh Somehow I ran into him and he told me about the job. And I remember uh, talking to my wife, dale and said, can I apply? And uh, we were, you know, we were happy out in South Dakota. It was a great little town and a, a great school and a great basketball community. And uh, we decided that uh, let's apply. And from there, journeyed back to Cambridge, interviewed and was offered the job. So, again, that's basically uh, where it all started. Brett.
0: 33 years at Cambridge and a handful more, like you mentioned, in South Dakota. How many career wins do you have?
1: Uh, I don't like to talk. What I'm at uh, six under five hundred right now. Let's say
0: so. I, I I knew it was close. So I, I knew it was really close. And time with time. uh, you know, we were just talking before we hit record. With who knows what the winner is going to look like. We might end up playing each other four four or five times this year. So I'm I know Henry got his two thousandth against us what last year or two years ago, his junior year. And I'll do everything I can and not let five hundred happen. Just so you know, yeah, against I, us. That.
1: I was just going to tell you, Brad. I was hoping I could get my five hundred when we play the Princeton Tigers, but. You know,
0: <laughs> We might, we you know, my the way it works. We might only play each other seventeen times. We might just play every Tuesday, Friday, and just rotate and keep yeah, keep that, it on ninety five to limit exposure. Who knows? That eighteen
1: that eighteen mile trip on uh, Highway ninety five. Yeah, that might have to work out. You're right.
0: <laughs> so you just you just mentioned on Twitter that you're retiring from teaching. Correct?
1: Yeah, I think this is it. You know, I'll be. uh You know, a lot of things have entered in that. You know, it's been a. I've been now it's, it's going on 40 years of being a teacher in the classroom. And I, I love teaching in the classroom. I teach uh, U.S. and world history. Uh, I enjoy teaching history. I enjoy both the U S and the world history, but it's the point in time I think where I can, I can step back. I mean, it's, uh, you know, next, um, next may I'll be turning 65. And, uh, my youngest son Kyle uh, is now teaching, and he joined another rival, the uh, the Forest Lake Ranger Staff. So he's teaching over in Forest Lake, and quite honestly, I do have him now off my family insurance, which makes decision making a whole lot easier. So, <laughs> yeah, I think at, at this point, I've kind of, you know, let it let it be known through social media and through talking to people around our high school. This is probably going to be the last year for me. I, you know, I'm I'm planning on continuing to coach. I still love what I do with coaching, and you know, Al, uh, Bill Bauman basically, you know, he showed me that for eight years as being a member of my staff that basically, you know, that that retired gig of just coaching is not that bad either.
0: Yeah, you could always tell. And we'll talk about Bill here at the end as that came through as one of our Twitter questions. But, you know, you could always tell that, you know, in my brief conversation with Bill that he always uh, had teams pretty well scouted with his full time uh, coaching gig and probably made film watching a lot easier for you.
1: Yeah, totally, totally, and you know we'll talk if you, we'll talk about Bill later. But yeah, Bill was uh, for the eight years of the season, he took a lot of pressure off me. Bill said that was the best coaching job he ever had, being part of our staff. And of course, we're going to miss Bill as he steps aside this uh, this coming season. But Bill made it a whole lot easier for me because he was he was my advance scout. He was the guy that was watching film. Uh, his wife, Carol, uh, according to Bill, was even a more avid film watcher, which he'd get on Huddle and watch, watch film as well. So between the two of them, they watched a lot of film, and it made my life a lot easier uh, not having to, to watch as much film as I did. We, Bill would just sh- tell me, hey, watch this, watch that as we prepared for a game or watched our own team play on film.
0: You've won against your son in the section final last year and you've had some, um, and I've joked about it on Twitter, some hotly contested battles with the Greyhounds. What is that like for you as a dad, especially in a section final situation where you know how much, how how important basketball is to Rhett, but also you're competitive and you've coached against your dad and your siblings in games as well. And you know that during those 36 minutes you're, you're trying to win the game and you'll be dad and son afterwards, but talk about what goes into just how, what what that experience is like coaching against Rhett in a section final.
1: Yeah, well, yeah. As you just alluded to, uh, Brett, uh, coaching against your son is never easy. I mean, it's uh, those are not easy games uh, because, like you said, we're, we're in it to you know we're in it to win. Both of us are in it to win, and somebody has to lose. That's that's the biggest problem is that somebody needs to lose that game or will lose that game. And and as a as a dad, you want him to have the very best, but I mean, playing in the section final. Uh, there's no doubt, you know, you devote a lot of time and energy, energy to your own players, your own uh, your own kids, your own program, and you want your program to, to come out and win. I think, uh, you know, the biggest, you know, I can handle that a little bit, and we all can handle that a little bit. Rhett can handle a little bit. But it, it's a very emotional, and, and be, because you put a lot of passion into it, it's very difficult. I know it's been very difficult on uh, my wife, Gaila, and Rhett's mom, because she has to sit there and, of course, watch. <laughs> babble it out and and all the games that we have played basically have been real tough games. I mean last year we we beat uh the Greyhounds three times, but they're all emotional tough games that came down to just a few possessions here and there.
0: So you've done this now for a long time. You mentioned you're you're racking up the career wins, getting close to a big milestone. Talk about how your philosophy has evolved over time from when you first started coaching in South Dakota to uh this past season section championship uh, in twenty twenty.
1: Well, yeah, that's a great question because it's been, you know, it's been uh, approximately 37 years as a head coach. I I think a lot of my upbringing, um, the the beginnings of my basketball philosophy came from probably my dad, my dad, Bob McDonald, because in playing for him and watching and being associated with that program from a very young kid until the time I was a player, I think a lot of things that my dad did up in Chisholm, Uh, were at least the the backbone of of where I came from I mean we uh, up in Chisholm we did a lot of uh, zone pressing that kind of stuff we uh, shot the ball we ran run and gun transition game all that kind of stuff so it was very up tempo uh, in my upbringing from my from then to South Dakota I think I took those things and probably uh, did much the same Uh, you know the full court pressure the the, uh, fast pace, that kind of stuff. And then coming to Cambridge, it was, I remember coming to Cambridge, it was a, a little bit different because when I got here in 1987 with that kind of style of play, I found out that my first year was, uh, that my lineup was not conducive to play run and gun. We are very short on short uh, shorthanded, let's say on having guards, but we had some real big kind of big kids that were very, f- uh, football player like, and, uh, basically had to probably change a little bit to try to 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 make things work but eventually in the 90s etc uh we began to uh develop our program develop a philosophy of play which is is probably similar to the the uh the pace that that i i had played early in my career but now we're to that point i think the major thing though that has changed the game brad is is probably the three-point strike you know the uh You know, when I was in high school, of course, we didn't play with the three-point stripe. I would have loved to play with the three-point stripe when I was in high school. But then as you get away to basically the three-point stripe today, I remember the the first year that I had the three-point stripe was the 1987 season out in South Dakota. South Dakota was actually one year ahead of Minnesota. My first year in Minnesota, the 1988 season, was the first year of the three-pointer. But now you look at how the three-point shot has changed the game. And, of course, as you look at the way our teams play, and you know it too, we have had uh, teams that really like to shoot the three, and I think that will continue.
0: So you, you talked about the three-point line. I want to build off that a little bit. Um, you know, one thing that I've, you know, been impressed with that you mentioned that you're know, getting on 65 years old here, coaching now for 37 years. You're one of the more active coaches that I follow on liking and retweeting things on social media. And just talk about how you, um, as a more experienced coach, is, are still able to go back to the drawing boards, do a little research, and use social media uh, to improve your coaching.
1: You know, I think I think that's, I think social media for all coaches is important. I think it's it's probably as more important for probably that young coach. As a coach that's been doing it for as long as I do, do I use social media? Yes, I do. What am I looking for? Uh, probably little tweaks here and there. Maybe, uh, maybe uh, a new out-of-bounds play, maybe from the sideline or baseline out-of-bounds. Maybe it's a little different action that we could use within our, within our program. I think we're pretty well set uh, with our system of play here at Cambridge ISANI. Uh, with the way we play, but there's always little things that you can look at. I think, too, uh, individual development, skill development. There's so much on social media that uh, you can use for maybe drills for skill development, maybe in your off-season or within your practices. And as a coach, I, I think you, you and I know that. As a coach, you must always be learning. I mean, there's always new things to learn, and I think social media is a very good vehicle uh, to learn new things. And yeah, I use social media a lot. Basketball Immersion, I'm a member of that. Uh, you know, Coach's Toolbox, I get a lot of ideas out of that. Uh, and just uh, watching Twitter and, and things like that for, for different things. And and to this day, uh, Bill Bauman and I basically uh, still share things to each other, even though Bill has kind of retired from my program, We are in daily contact where he sees a new drill or he sees a new action or a new out-of-bounds play or something like that. So we're always looking for new things, new ideas, and all coaches need to do that, basically. And I think especially those are trying to establish their footprint, maybe a younger coach.
0: I think you hit on the, uh, hit on the head when he mentioned trying to find ways to tweak or just slight improvements or, or small adjustments that you can make throughout the season because I think that, and I've talked to this with, uh, I know especially with your nephew when we had Bryce on a long time ago, one of the first guests, uh, was you can really drown in what's out on social media and on Infestra, and if you can – or we're gonna do, you see something over the weekend, you're now all of a sudden trying to put four new plays in on Monday for your Tuesday game. It can, it can be extremely counterproductive to your program. But what I've been so impressed with, like you mentioned, with, um, you know, adding things to tweak your program is you guys definitely have a clear program identity. It's on Twitter. It's on every T-shirt you see a Cambridge I annie basketball player have, and that's Havoc. So why don't you talk a little bit about what that means, what that philosophy is that for those that aren't uh, familiar with the, with the Blue Jacket uh, philosophy of Havoc
1: yeah thank you and and uh, basically uh, that that established a few years ago uh you know we we came up with that havoc moniker uh just a couple of years ago We felt we had we had everything in place to play the style of basketball that we wanted to play and you know you and I know we are uh, strong believers in our matchup defense uh you know which with which is uh a kind of unique uh, as uh you know and that a lot of again what the the style of play and that matchup that we play for his matchup defense that we play and notice I don't call it the matchup zone some people call it a matchup zone I think we just call it the matchup uh here at Cambridge Sandy but a lot of that credit goes to Bill Bauman again because uh Bill and I were rivals for many years I mean Bill was at North Branch I was at Cambridge Sandy The neither the the thing that basically uh occurred was a lot of times I opened my season playing in North Branch. For whatever reason, we always played North Branch and Bill Bauman's teams first. The biggest difficulty, of course, was preparing for his matchup defense. And, uh, you know, because preparing for that is is sometimes more unique than any other defense that you play. And prior to that, I used to play a lot of man-to-man, switching some zones, switching man-to-man. But what I liked about the matchup was that it allowed us to – uh basically have rules that we didn't have to worry. For example, man to man on ball screens. Are you going to switch? Are you going to hedge? Are you going to soft hedge? Are you going hard hedge? All of that. We have rules that that once our kids understand that, that we can play it that way. Using the havoc philosophy to in incorporate our match our matchup, then it was more extending defensively, extending our matchup, looking into full court pressure, full court trap, and then on the offensive end, it's all about pushing the basketball, playing with pace. Uh, getting spacing. We talked about four-point spacing a lot. You know, a lot of people uh, say you know they talk about spacing. We we use the philosophy. I think the 76ers and Brett Brown were the first ones that we heard about it. That we actually uh, talked about four-point spacing. That if they said a three-pointer, we want to be outside that to really space the floor, and then of course uh, look to shoot the three. Look look for drive lanes, uh, double gaps, that kind of stuff as we. As we and then, of course, penetrate and kick back out to three, or penetrate to the basket. Uh, but I think it's more havoc is more uh, that defensive philosophy of pressure, but also incorporating the pace of the game and getting up and down the floor as fast as quickly as possible, and trying to look for those first scoring opportunities.
0: I definitely want to talk about your guys' tempo and the pace of play that you guys have. But I want to take a step back on the offensive side first and talk about uh, shooting your team always shoots lights out and you got guys who, you know, we watch as sophomores who are maybe, um, we play them twice. They go one for five in the two games. All of a sudden their junior year, they're shooting 45% from three. And so what do you, or how do you teach shooting in your program? Because you got guys who take every year take leaps and bounds who maybe one guy is we're taking off of him as a bench player, as a sophomore, then a junior. Now he's, we got to get out to, now there's a senior year we can't help off of him. So we've seen playing you guys two times a year, seen a lot of film, obviously with our conference film exchange that you have guys developed immensely, develop immensely as shooters. So what are some of your philosophies when teaching shooting in your program?
1: Well, we, you know, and and again, that has evolved over time. Uh, Number one, I think within our program, we have kids that have shot a lot, you know, and that you're not going to get to be a better shooter without uh, time and effort. Uh, you know, I can use Henry Abraham, for example, and Henry's uh, probably not the greatest example in many ways because Henry was superb when it came to shooting the basketball. But the, the point is, is that Henry put a lot of time in the offseason uh, shooting the basketball. And sometimes that idea, you know, what leads to shooting success is just the idea that there to be successful at shooting, uh, people use the example of Henry Abraham, that if I want to be successful, I have to put it in the time. So I think within the program, we, uh, you know, that we have kids that have put in the time. We have a ten thousand shot off-season program uh, that we're actually doing online now. You've probably seen that. We have some of our players have, uh, and we count shots shots made rather than shots missed. So we have some of my players. Last I looked, we're up there about eighty thousand shots made, and some of these were ninth graders that are just entering our program. So, and we have others less than that. But I think number one, throughout the program, we have people that understand. Uh, that shooting the basketball is very important. I think our style of play leads to that too, because you and I know if uh, two two shots that kids like to take when they jump into the gym. Number one, dunk. And Number two, shoot the three. And uh, you know, I think the way we play uh, has uh, given the message to our kids. Hey, for us to be successful in this program, we got to be able to shoot it. Now we do a lot of drills and practice too. Uh, you know, we. Uh, we have, uh, you know, we we talk about shooting off the hop, for example, two feet together, uh, which I'm a believer at. I also think the player needs to shoot the one-two step as well, because I think if you're you can do shoot the hop and the one-two step, it makes you very effective with your footwork. We spend a lot of time with footwork uh, in a practice situation. Of course, it's a little bit harder because on our main floor, for example, we have our our JV on one floor, our varsity on the floor, and our ninth grade on the third floor we don't have a whole lot of baskets but each and every day we spend time and a lot of our shots actually in a practice situation are three-point shots we you know or it's finishes at the rim uh, we don't do a whole lot as you know we don't do a whole lot of work on mid-range stuff and that's just our philosophy of play.
0: you mentioned that you're a big basketball emergence fan and you have the you mentioned the subscription and you, there's a ton of drills and there's a ton of stuff in there that you can just like dive into obviously as a subscriber to that but what are some of the main shooting drills you mentioned you're limited on space your varsity team doesn't have 20 hoops to shoot at in a a practice so what are some of the drills that you're using in practice that uh your guys that you found as allowed your guys to have the most success in developing their shooting
1: you know we do a lot of stuff uh, three ball two man stuff you know we'll shoot spots a lot of times we'll shoot either a five spot or, or seven spot seven spot usually a five spot drill where we'll shoot corners and We'll partner shoot a lot, even though that we, sometimes we'll have our, one of our other teams uh, clear out a, another basket so we can put another three, four, guy, uh, four guys, two pairs at a basket. We shoot a lot of spots. We try to keep track of uh, how many we're shooting. We'll shoot spots with groups of three, maybe three ball, two ball, where we're going to keep track again. We'll compete. I think it's important to compete when you're shooting in practice. Uh, have groups that are competing against each other because then it makes uh, makes it better. I think you know it's uh, we try to do uh, within our offensive system, our passing game offensive system. We do shooting drills, you know, where we're going to do pop back shooting and things like that. So we do some actions of our offense, but it leads to three point shots too. So we try to within our system do a lot, and even in our uh, even in our defensive drills, where we're working on matchup. Of course, we're looking we're looking to get shots up against defenders in that case, too. So I think we spend a lot of time, each and every day, we spend a lot of time shooting the basketball. I don't know, a lot of time for us might mean several drills of maybe a half hour total within a 2 over practice situation. And a lot of our emphasis is actually shooting shooting threes uh, just because of the way we play.
0: You mentioned your offensive tempo and you guys have been one of the higher scoring teams in class 4 a, obviously, Henry Abraham, who just graduated 3000 point score going off and playing division one basketball, Eastern Illinois. What are some of the uh, coaching points though, that you have in practice when you're installing, I know you run your passing game in the half court, and we'll talk about that here next, but transition wise, what are some of the things you're looking, what are some of the roles or responsibilities that you guys have within your transition offense? And then how are you drilling that and repping that in practice?
1: Well, we do that. We do this every, every day. We, we usually start a practice uh, with what we call a one-two-three-to-five drill, which uh, that, uh, the, uh, the five group of five will have five trips up and down the floor. It's really a five-on-zero type of uh, situation. In our, uh, in our transition game or our fast break game or our tempo game, uh, we do have designated spots that our players run to, and we try to fill both corners, fill both corners, we try to get the ball well, – I think it's very important uh, to basically get the ball inbounded as quickly as possible. You know, if you're going to run an effective uh, transition game or up-tempo basketball, that ball, once it, once it goes to the net or is turned over, you've got to get it going. And uh, it's very – we have a designated guy. Usually, it takes the ball out of bounds. We try to get it across half court in two seconds in pras- practice. You know and try to advance the ball up the sideline if possible to try to get into our transition game we have a rim runner typically uh we have we have uh uh typically we have a rim runner uh that runs the rim and that's usually what we call our four or five man our four man is usually our big guy that runs the rim and our five man is our trailer so we have a trailer and that five man in bounds the ball and we get up and down the floor everybody has a designated spot I think getting that ball out of the basket or getting that ball inbounded is so important. Getting it across the half line is important. And I think all players have to understand in transition basketball that it is probably those first couple of steps in that defensive backcourt that that are important. That's where you have to get out and run. It's not – you can't run after you get across. You can't jog to half court. Your wings, for example, on that change of possession really have to get out and have to – get to their spots in our case, get to their spots and get it going. You can't, you know, it's, it's very important. Otherwise you, you're not going to have an effective transition game or effective pace of play.
0: You make a good point there about those first couple of steps. Cause I feel like so many teams or coaches want to play fast and you've seen it. You've seen teams on film December, their first couple games, they're playing fast. But then all of a sudden by January, their scores are in the fifties because it's a, it's, it's a lot of work to play fast and it's constant movement, right? You can't have your guys, jogging down the court on offense. And so I think that's a huge point that you mentioned was those first couple of steps. And it has to be every possession. It can't just be off of steals or on misses. It has to be on makes. And that's where I think your team, um, obviously, you know, the first time we played this past year, and you're up by like seventy-five or something at halftime. And then obviously we played three days later and it was a clank fest for both teams on the President's Day Monday when no one had school uh double overtime game. But what's always been so impressive watching your teams, especially when you're, you know, we like when we scout you guys, we really like, we really like to focus on the and no knocking the conference schools by any means. We like to watch your and over your Blaine, your Forest Lake games where you're playing maybe some bigger, stronger, faster four A programs to see what you guys do because we figure if you're doing it versus them, you're, you know that's probably a similar type of look that we're going to get. And um, just every single possession, you guys get out and run, and that's why I feel like uh, your team has gone and has is able to roll off a you know especially in the past couple of years a fifteen to two, eleven to one run in about ninety seconds because your guys constantly are moving and constantly running. So I think that's something that. Um, in watching your teams play is so important and it is it happens 36 minutes your guys are running um, I want to move into the half court now and talk about the passing game uh, I know this is kind of a collaboration piece with coach Bauman uh, so just talk about your general half court philosophy you mentioned now transition getting it out quick getting it across half court in two seconds but what is your main actions what are your main looks as you get into the half court
1: yeah you know we are uh... Our basic set, you know, we might we might run a rim runner, but that rim runner is going to be just one of many other players. I think our our philosophy, first of all, is our offense is positionless. Okay, yeah. Even though we'll have a post player typically on the defensive end or a bigger kid on the defensive, end, we we typically believe that all of our players have to be positionless. I think that's that's the key because if you have people that have a difficulty shooting the ball, first of all, in our in our offense, of course. Uh, you know, we want to open up the lanes for cuts, etc. So we'll we'll basically be a, a five out eventually after our, after our tr- transition game. And then we're looking at uh, staggered screens, double staggered screens, we're looking at curls, we're looking at slips, we're looking at basket cuts. And what we try to basically work with our players is that everything has to be unpredictable. You know, it, we, I started like I know Bill Bauman was much the same. And like you said, this was a collaboration with Bill Bauman. A lot of his ideas, uh, not only defensively, but offensively. But basically, uh, you know, I started, you know, years ago running flex offense. Okay. The the flex offense. And the problem with flex offense, as you know, is that when people start switching the flex, it gets uh, a little bit more difficult to run the flex. And so then he had, then I remember as a coach running flex, okay, what are we going to do when he starts switching? What actions are we going to do uh, with switching? And we had a few of those actions. When Bill Bauman came into our program, of course, uh, that brought in really more of the passing game, which, as you know, has flex actions but other actions as well, open post actions, that kind of stuff. And and I think there our offense became more predictable. As you know, we'll have we do have cutters, but there's always – People spacing out again. I talked about four-point spacing, so we'll have you know a uh, short curl, hard curls, swim cuts, as we call them, all of that kind of stuff that opens up, opens up our play. And, and our goal here is to make whoever's defending us have a hard time uh, communicating, because as you know, defense is communication. If you have a hard time communicating, if you're going to be switching, for example, or staying, or stuff like that, and you're very unpredictable, it makes you harder to guard.
0: And uh, so, oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead.
1: You go no, so you mentioned your
0: swim cut. Uh, I want you to elaborate on that. And I want you to first off though, answer. So I think I mentioned this when I, I maybe I've mentioned to you or Bill before, but uh, how we always scout you guys, the one that we always have the hardest time with, we call it your rock, paper, scissor cut it's kind of your convergence action on the block we honestly just tell our guys you know they just kind of play rock paper scissor and then one guy uses the flex screen one guy uses the down screen and it seems like there's really no rhyme or reason so is that your swim cut and if not what is what is the actual terminology so we can stop calling it the rock paper scissor action
1: (laughs) you know that's it's just passing game action brad is as what you can see and you know let's say we have a guy in the corner and there's two screeners coming down for him uh, basically, you know, I, I you know, I'm going to, I'm going to keep this as unpredictable for you as possible. Yes, by all means, I, go I, for I, it. I not <laughs> right now. So <laughs> anyway, when those two screeners come down, the, the, the guy using the screen has options. And, uh, you know, if you have two screeners coming down, he could swim. our swim cut is kind of, he goes underneath both, both screens. Our short curl is he goes, curls around the first screener and our, our long curl is where, he can go around the two screeners, and and then there's a straight pop, uh, a straight. You can come off straight to the top too, and so there's all there's a, basically four options for every 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 guy using screens if he has a stake or single screens. Much the same, you can curl, you can swim underneath, which is kind of a flex cut, I guess you could call it, or you could come right back out to the top. And a lot of it, of course, uh, using our offense is our our uh, players need to kind of read the defense basically a lot of our to for us to be effective our players have to read the defense where's the defense playing you is he playing you up top therefore you should swim is he trailing you therefore you should curl where is he playing you and I think that that takes a lot of time I mean it takes a lot of time to basically get your players to understand what kind of cut is going to be most effective and we spend a lot of time uh, you know with three on three four on four action. Much of our practice is very little full court, and Bill Bauman probably probably you've heard him talk before too bill uh, we spend very little time in full court. We might do uh an offense, a defense an offense three trips, and we don't spend a whole lot of time in just let's say open court scrimmaging you know we'll maybe once in a while we'll mix it up we do but it's a lot of a lot of times our our practice is based in the half court both on offense and both on defense and I think that's where you can nail it down you say well what do you do for conditioning we don't we don't run lines very often the only time we run lines is when we're upset with effort as coaches with our players they're they're sluggish we got to get their attention somewhere through all of our drills and using transition and our pace of play we feel that our players can get conditioned into our practice by just showing effort in our pace of play on both ends so that's basically you know talking about our offense that's really that paper rock scissors uh yeah we want to be we want to be unpredictable we want to have all cuts and make keep the defense guessing as to what cut they have to try to defend
0: let's switch to the defensive side of it here uh, I'd, I'd love to talk offense all day but uh we'll we'll, we'll give some defense time because you guys are unique on that side of the ball or that side of the court as well and uh one thing that again you guys do a really good job of is you you guys keep their feet moving nonstop stop on defense their feet never stop moving And you don't, and I think I'm not saying anything that you wouldn't say, you don't have the best athletes in the state by any means. I think you got kids who work their ass off, who are bought into the system and they're good athletes, good basketball players, but they, they truly buy into the system and the style of play that you guys have. And so what are some ways that you, A, kind of condition your kids to keep their feet moving on defense. And then also what are some of your rules on when to jump passes and when to try to turn the team over?
1: You know, it's. I think there, there's a lot of stuff there. I think, in practice, wise, again, uh, you know, we do a lot of in our in our defense. We have uh, breakdown drills where we'll start uh, maybe a three on three defensive drill. We're playing our matchup principles, are which is really as you look at it, it's a uh, switching man to man with a lot of communication. Last year, you look at my last year's team, for example, we had. Uh, you know we had uh, Connor Broughton, who's about six foot four six foot five, and then after that we, we were loaded with seniors and and uh, But if you looked at our team in warm ups, we were not very impressive as as athletes. You know we had a bunch of guys that were about probably sub six foot tall or sub six foot tall. But the thing is with guys like uh well Henry Abraham, of course, Michael Ladd, for example, Paul Swanson the thing that made us effective last year 24 wins was that these kids all bought into each other and they understood uh, understood our defense and played the role so well so you know I think that's important uh that number one you have to understand our defensive system I think you talked you mentioned it right where we don't start stop our feet we do a lot of like uh dis- disadvantage drills defensively maybe it's uh five on four where our kids got to just hustle all over and uh, take the next pass and close out and keep our feet moving and get to the help side and principles like that. So I think we, in a practice, a lot of our, our defensive drills are maybe we start three on three, then we might go four on three, four on four, five on four. We might have a drill where five on four with a guy standing out of bounds and on the change of possession, then it becomes a five-on-five five going down the other end. Uh, then it would be a five-on-five five coming back to us, and then we'll switch. We do a lot of drills like that that try to incorporate all of our defensive principles, whether it be you know, small-sided games, so to speak, or disadvantaged situations, or transition situations, things like that. And then another, uh, we call it, uh, some people, we call it uh, 10 minutes of havoc or 10 minutes of hell, somebody, some of my guys like to refer to it 10 minutes of hell, where we're for for 10 minutes, it could be a four on four game where we're just, we have like an eight second shot clock and you have to press and you have to look to double. And we have maybe a team of six or two subs and you have to sub yourselves out. We just go up and down for 10 minutes and we keep score. And we do burpees or push-ups afterwards for losers to keep there. And we're just looking to push the ball and trap and and running back and forth, which ends up at the end of our practice, a lot of times, uh, ends up as a great competitive conditioner. And we'll do that a lot. Our kids love the drill. I mean, even this summer, the few workouts we have with our kids, they were always asking, can we play the 10 minutes of Havoc at the end? Because it is a a totally fast pace. And we'll, we, you know, we'll count down a shot clock, one of my assistants or myself, and usually it's an eight second shot clock where they have to get a shot off in eight seconds. And we do other drills with that too. And that really creates the pace of our practice and then works on, on the conditioning piece of the two breath.
0: I'll spare you some of the details of your matchup zone uh, since you don't want to give me a free scout, and I totally understand that. I do want to ask ask this one question about your matchup defense. You mentioned it's kind of like switching. What's the? Give me a quick summary on how your matchup defense or the matchup, like you mentioned, is different than a switching man defense.
1: Well, I think the 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 biggest thing I, I think is very similar. I think uh, you know we don't we don't stay if a guy, for example. If you're got a guy at the top and he passes and cuts, we don't follow that guy. We don't follow. We'll we'll follow him to a certain point, and then we'll give him up to another player, and then we'll look for the guy that fills that next spot or that next pass. So on the ball, very much has man-to-man principles. We we do switch ball screens a lot. We've done we've doubled ball screens at times if we want to double off ball screens. Uh, we've actually worked last year on icing ball screens a little bit, but we're, we're basically in the situation where we do switch a lot of, of ball screens. If it's, a, if it's a down screen, of course, that's an easy switch for us. Uh, but I think the basic difference between a switching man-to-man and our matchup is what do we do with cutters? Uh, basically, again, like I said before, when a ball is passed, the guy will, our defender is told to jump to the ball. We don't like to give any face cuts he'll take him, the, the cutter will go down into the paint or that free throw line area. Then we'll give him up to the next player and we'll then jump to that next pass. And that's where we try to get aggressive with trying to take away that next pass. It's all about ball pressure too. We talk about to our, a lot of our kids too in our defense and it, it's any defense that we expect to put ball pressure, ball pressure on the basketball to, to try to create a poor pass. You know, if your hands are down, for example, we talk about high hands a lot at least one high hand and we've talked about putting ball pressure on mirroring the basketball all that kind of stuff to put pressure on the basketball to make that next pass tougher and that next pass could be a perimeter pass or a pass into the paint but I think the basic difference between switching man to man and our matchup is that cutting aspect you know what we do with cutters
0: for those listening to this on their prep here Monday morning, uh, we're recording this at, right, right now it's 1135 on Sunday. So we're kind of up against kickoff with the Vikings Packers here. So I got a few more questions here for Mike and then I'll let you, we'll go on our ways and, uh, and watch the Vikings game here. But K through 12, like I mentioned earlier, you guys have the Havoc shirts on your. When I've seen your youth teams, there's Havoc and it's in the crowd. And um, it's, you know, maybe from an opponent's perspective, it's um bothersome and, and annoying and but you know what when you take a step back and look at the the culture that you've created there in cambridge um it's what what all of us all the coaches what, what we should all strive for is that unifying term or that unifying mentality or philosophy within our program so talk about what that looks like on the offensive defensive side within your um you know work ninth grade level on down into your your youth ranks
1: yeah i think uh you know and quite honestly our system is difficult uh, don't get me wrong. I think you're a brand-new player that is, let's say we had a transfer that came into our program. I think picking up our defensive offensive system will not be easy because there's a lot of rules. I, You know, when Bill Bauman came to our program in 2013, and I said, hey, we're going to play – we made the decision uh, between Bill and I, we're going to play the matchup. We're playing the matchup. And uh, needless to say, we play the matchup as our primary defense throughout the game. Very rarely will we jump to man. Uh, we did uh, do some weird things against Duluth East in the, in the uh, section final game that made our defense look more man-to-man uh, because of some of the actions that they did. We had to try to adjust our matchup too. But I think, uh, number one, is, like I said, it's difficult. Our, our defense is difficult to understand. Uh, at the ninth grade level, many of our, our players have are first exposed to the matchup. Uh, we try to teach it. A lot of times where we start is we try to teach a switching man-to-man that's where it all starts. Teach a switching man-to-man, maybe uh, do some more zone pressing as such, and go from there. As we get down into the uh, lower levels, our middle school programs, of course, middle school programs uh, basically are, you know, a lot of times they're, they're under rules that would say you have to play man-to-man and the matchup, even though I would say it has a lot of man-to-man principles it probably wouldn't work. Uh, even to play it at the middle school level because of some of the rules that are there. So, but I think it's very important uh, as we get into our younger levels, that number one, they have to be able to play man to man. I think that's where it all has to start. I I, I'm, you know, I guess uh, you can win uh, as a youth coach by playing zone, you can win, but as a high school coach waiting for players to come out of your youth levels, I think it's important. Number one, your players have to play man to man. Can they play switching man-to-man at your youth levels? Yes. Do we try to get them to do that? Yes. Uh, offense-wise at our youth levels, our passing game is difficult. Where do we start? like to start with? Maybe some flex action. Flex action at the youth levels that will lead eventually to playing passing game at our high school level. And we try to use our passing game principles with our ninth graders and, the, of course, just ramp it up a little bit as each and every year as we get to the varsity level.
0: One of the questions that came through on Twitter uh, was fitting system to players or having your players fit your system. Now you, you mentioned you have the Broughton kid back who I know is a good athlete, quarterback of the football team and kind of just the, the guy that did a lot for you that maybe didn't show up in this stat, you know, Michael Ladd was scoring, Henry Abraham was scoring a lot. You had the shooters off the bench, but Broughton was the one who I feel like felt like did a lot of stuff. And he was able to guard some bigs that you guys went against, provide a little bit of a rim protection um, you know, when maybe your defense will get broken down or maybe team would break the press or whatever the case may be. Um, you return him. But you have a big roster turnover um, this year. You know, JV team was pretty solid. But talk about, you know, how will you change things? Will you try to continue to fit the players to your system or will you, will you tweak things to fit the players that are coming in?
1: You know, that's, that's I think you always have to tweak it a little bit. But I, I think uh, throughout our program, I think that Havoc system, our system of play is an exciting way to play. I think it's come to our players know that that's how we want to play. And that's, that's how they would want to play. I think most of our players want to play that system. It's an exciting way to play. So will we, will the players fit the system? I I think they know that, that they have to work on their skills to basically fit in our system. Will we tweak our system to fit players from year to year? Yes. Uh, Years ago, uh, you know, we had a, a team we had a big guy the name of luke johnson for example you know and you remember luke he was a big wide body inside uh therefore our our offensive system ended up being a little bit different than it was let's say last year with the ability to shoot and our quickness and things like that so yes we'll always tweak but in my uh my feeling uh I love the way we played the last few years, the 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 pace of play, the pressure defense, and I think the expectations are that our players know that for them to be successful in their program, they got to get ready to play that type of style. We'll make some tweaks, but I don't think we're going to change our style, even with a big roster turnover. We're not going to change our style of play uh, and go backwards. I I love the system that we play, our defense and offensive systems, and we're going to continue that, and I hope our players, and I think our players understand, and all of our people, our youth understand that, hey, watching us play that way is the way I want to play when I play with the Blue Jackets.
0: I'll trade you some inside information from our program since you're graciously coming on here and spewing the stuff, the inside of the blue jackets program, we plan on playing the same way as well. And so I think we, when we had our YouTube live stream of our second game, I want to say, and you mentioned this, that this was the tipping point to get the huddle focus up in your gym was our game. um, The second time we played, I think we had like 250, 300 people that watched that live. Uh, so come on, watch the tiger blue jacket game. If, and when that happens down the road, we might play you guys five times. Who knows what the schedule will look like in the winter, but, uh, clearly it's going to be another up-tempo game. Um, a couple quick hitters here. Uh, we mentioned Bauman the last couple or throughout the, throughout this episode. Um, you mentioned he's eight years in the, in the program as an assistant with you was a rival coach for a long time from the old, old rum river conference days. Talk about what he meant to your program and then how you're going to fill, um, fill his void on your bench.
1: Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good question, Brett. And, uh, you know, I was very thankful that I had Bill, you know, like you said, we started as rivals, 14 miles apart, Cambridge, North Branch, and he started as rivals. And I think, uh, you know, and, and quite honestly, there was a time in our, in our careers where because of that rivalry and competitiveness, we probably didn't get along very well. Uh, back in summer of 2013, uh, my son, Rhett, for example, I was actually one of my assistants had stepped down and uh, I was actually went down to watch my nephew play baseball in, in Southwestern Minnesota. I was on my way home and, and Rhett called me and, and he was the one that came up with the idea that, hey, why don't you give Bill Bauman a call? And I was looking for a system and I called Bill and we sat down and met and talked about philosophy. And from there, uh, you know, started eight years of uh, a great, uh, gr- Bill was a great a- addition to our program, but also uh, Bill, has, Bill and Carol, his wife, become our best friends Uh, you know it was just a great situation and for Bill to step down I I knew that Bill told me several years ago that hey he's gonna hang in there until Henry Abraham uh, and his uh, teammates were done and so I knew that after last year it would be probably the the year for Bill Bill was driving from you think about this Bill lives in St. Cloud it was easier for him when he lived in North Branch but now he lives in St. Cloud and driving that 95 uh, each and every day to get to practice in Cambridge, uh, had to be monotonous. You've been on highway 95. <laughs> right? Not much there. <laughs> Not much there. And again, uh, you know, so I think, uh, that, and I knew that it was time. And, and Bill has a son, Brad, that coaches Grill in Royalton as a, as a granddaughter and things like that. So I, I knew that highway 95 drive would eventually come to an end. So there was a big void, but, Bill and his work for our program and and my camaraderie with him. And uh, I think he has put us a solid footing. Uh, We have our assistants in our program that are well aware of our our, uh, style of play and our system of play now. And we're going to miss Bill a lot. And I'll I'll miss Bill a lot. I'll miss Bill because I used to look forward to, you know, at about 2 o'clock, I had last hour prep every day. And Bill would come on over. And before practice started, let's say at 3 o'clock, Bill and I could sit down and we could just talk X's and O's and practice together or talk or watch film together or whatever like that for that hour practice. I'm going to miss those days, you know, having that void of Bill not coming over. But I do know, you know, we, like you said, we have huddle focus now on our gym too. And uh, we just put it up this summer and we actually uh, did a try and tape one of our practices and Bill will probably still be a member of our our huddle team over it. And I know this summer he was watching practice. And of course I was getting notes from Bill as he watched (laughs) practice. So he'll still evaluate what we're doing, I'm guessing. And I'm looking forward to his uh, continued evaluation because I know he will still watch us and he has uh, uh, still a huge connection with our program.
0: So last night I was watching the twins game and I pulled a 32 going on 72 moment uh bottom of the eighth inning uh twins hit, uh twins hit back-to-back or back-to-back home runs rosario hits a two-run home run snow hits a home run goes up eight to four i fall asleep woke up uh, the, the post game was on i was like oh they won look at my phone i got about seven notifications throughout the mcdonald family talking about a, some sort of dance-off related thing so getting ready right, cut to the chase who's a better dancer you or Rhett
1: well, that's a, you know, I, I, he was talking a little trash. I think it he was I, it, one of the things that came out last night. Rhett is a very good dancer, but you know, he was saying that he kind of gave me the onus that I was a better dancer than my wife, Dela. And uh, that's a tough one there because she would claim, and she does claim that she's a far better dancer than me. So I think maybe <laughs> Rhett got his dance moves a little bit from his mom as well. Even though Rhett said it was me, you know, I grew up during the disco years of the seventies and I was a young guy in the seventies in my teens or early twenties. So, you know, I, I thought I was a pretty good dancer back then, but you know, when you don't practice, it's like the game of basketball. If you don't practice your dancing, I think that is, uh, you're going to lose your skills a little bit. Red, I think spends a whole lot of time practicing, you know, <laughs> he, he's, uh, he must practice those dance moves before he got on TikTok the other day, because, uh, Actually, if you know my son, Rhett, a little story about him. Even as a young kid, he would—he uh, was a great choreographer of dancing dancers. You know, he'd have my daughter Kaylee and her friends, and he'd be—he'd be the choreographer for him. So <laughs> Rhett's skills at dancing is much more than his dance skills. There's a lot of—he's got a lot of choreography skills too. All
0: right, Mike. Well, I appreciate you coming on and sharing that story. That I'm sure Rhett's going to be extremely thrilled. That's going to be out there. Um, so hopefully, everyone. there's a lot of information here. Hopefully everyone makes it to the last minute to hear the, uh, really the most important part of this episode was hearing about Rhett's career as a choreographer for his little (laughs) sister and her friends. So, uh, Mike, I appreciate it. Uh, take care, stay safe, and hopefully we'll see you soon.
1: I hope to see you soon, Brett. Thank you for very much. Thank you very much for having us. We'll look forward to seeing the the, uh, Tigers in the future.
0: See you, Mike.